0: Good morning, everyone. My name's Jacinta, and it's my privilege to be reading God's Word today. Um, Before we read, let's ask God to prepare our hearts in prayer. So could you please pray with me? Thank you, Father, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Open our hearts to receive your Word, that we may know you better and be thoroughly equipped for every good work through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So today's reading comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10, and you can find that on page 1047 of your church Bibles. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. Ooh, it's very loud, isn't it? Um, it's good to be in the building with you, welcome if you're new, visiting, if you're joining us online as well. My family's online, I was told to wave this morning, so there you go Sam. Uh, just got a cold going through our house, so they're at home. Uh, it's good to be with you. If you're joining us today for the first time, we are in um, the third week of a, a series just reflecting on the priority, purpose and place of our church here in, um, in Willoughby. What does it mean to be God's church here? We started the first week really talking about the priority of the local church, actually, and saying we're called to love this group of people. God values the local church, the gathering of God's people. And so we were challenged to love these people, love them uh, sacrificially, actually. Last week, we started to embark on the question of what are the core characteristics? What do we believe are the core characteristics of God's church? as they seek to kind of go um, on the journey towards the church he's making us to be. And we said one of those core characters, we're people who pray big prayers shaped by the gospel. We have an optimism about the power of the gospel and the God of the gospel. And so we pray. We seek his, his, uh, his, his leading and his, his influence in our church life. And so... Uh, This week, we we want to continue on that and look a little bit more at some of those core characteristics. As we do that, the reality of any kind of vision uh, statement or any mission statement for a local church, uh, as you can see, I'm a bit crook too, so uh, I've I've done the rat test. That's kind of the standard disclosure, isn't it, now in COVID life? I've done my rat test, I'm good, uh, but apologies if I sound a bit croaky. Uh, anything that's part of a a vision state must be a question of how we interact with the world around us and so how do we conceive of the world that we live in in uh, the recent census results you may be aware of this don't worry if you can't see the exact details but in the recent census uh, results uh, this graph was produced it's one of the first um, first things to be reported on gleefully by a the media, and it's the decline of religious affiliation in our church. Now, if you can't see it, don't worry, the teal, ironically, the teal colour in the graph reflects uh, Christian uh, those who tick the box Christian uh, in their religious affiliation. And from about 1971, when the number was about 84% of people uh, ticking that box, it has been in steady decline until this year when it was 44%. This feels like a very bleak view of the world and the, and the culture and community that our church is trying to reach. I wonder if your perception of the world is equally bleak when it comes, uh, when it comes to such things. Is your, is your sense that the world is in a, in a fairly terrible position? Well, it's one thing to... Have have your own view about that? I guess the bigger question is, what's God's view about the world? Does He have a bleak view of the world? Does Jesus have a bleak view of the world? And and with that question in mind, I had us had to read for us uh, from Luke 15, which is these three parables. We just read the first two today. I think we're going to have the third one later for Father's Day, actually. Um, But these three parables. And in them, I think the, 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 the account that Jesus gives is an insight into the way he sees the world. And how does he see the world? Well, I want to say I think he sees the world in a particularly bleak way, too, actually. The, there's a recurring theme or idea in each of the parables, and it's the idea of being lost. There's a sheep that's lost, and there's a coin that's lost. And there's going to be a son that's lost, actually, if you read the third parable. And the word lost, in Jesus' usage, if you're not aware, the New Testament, when we read it in English, was originally written in the Greek language, common Greek, and the Greek word for lost can be translated a variety of ways. It can be translated ruined, cut off, destroyed, Maybe even killed. In fact, when the Old Testament was translated into common Greek for the people around Jesus' time to read it, Leviticus was translated. The word lost comes up regularly in the Old Testament. Here's an example of being used in Leviticus. I will set my face against that man and I will cut him off. He'll be dis- he'll be lost, in other words, from his people. For by giving his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. Now, this is one of those laws in the Old Testament. It's a law in response to child sacrifice which of course god hated and so he he prescribes a punishment and he says the person who does this will be cut off or the same word as jesus is using in this parable he'll be lost he'll be destroyed extreme piece of evil matched by an extreme punishment So when Jesus says that the world is lost, and that's who he's talking about, because in the first two verses of our account is a little context setter, which actually really shapes our understanding of the parable. The context is the Pharisees and the crowd. And the Pharisees complain that Jesus is mingling with the crowd. The crowd are actually reflective of of the world, apart from the religious core of Israel. And Jesus describes the world, apart from the religious core of Israel, as lost, as cut off, as destroyed, as ruined. So Jesus' view, actually, of the world is particularly bleak. Maybe you're expecting me to say, oh, he has a positive view of the world. Actually, he's very bleak. And interestingly, the New Testament writers take Jesus' teaching, the apostles, the early church, and you know what? They see that Jesus is not actually just making a comment about the world. He's making a comment about not only the non-religious, but also the religious group. And so Paul will say in Romans 3, a well-known passage, he say there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God all have turned away. Paul's actually, he's interestingly writing that to the Jews. He's saying, actually, you too are also lost. There's no one who seeks God. There is there is no one who is not lost, in other words. Paul says, actually, picking up what Jesus says, the whole world is lost. This is a universal problem. It is not just the world out there. It is not just the non-religious people. The religious people of Jesus' time also lost. The Jewish people also lost. Ruined, destroyed, cut off. Now, I think when we start to hear that, that's when we start to feel a bit uncomfortable. I mean, we're happy to put the child sacrifice person in the lost basket, the ruined basket, the murderer, the corporate thief, but everyone? Myself. But the challenge is when you start to reflect on yourself genuinely, look into the deepest parts of your heart with an honesty which you would not you would not publicly declare, perhaps you see the reason why you might fall into that that basket too. I mean if you imagine you carried a some kind of thought recorder around your neck for a week, a recorder that records not just the things you verbally, audibly say, but the things you think, your, your passing fancies, your, 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 your moments, uh, moments of reflection, your, your internal flash-outs, all, all those little thoughts that just come into your mind just for a moment, even before you can control them. Would you be happy for someone else to hear that? Of course not. See, what the Bible's saying about everyone's lostness resonates when we're willing to be genuinely sincere to ourselves, at least, about who we are. And you know what? The lostness that the Bible is talking about, ultimately, Jesus teaches leads to hell itself, to, to, the, to the, most, the, the most terrible of outcomes. The most terrible of outcomes. This is genuinely the worst place to be, what Jesus is describing. In fact, in Luke 12, just a couple of chapters before this, Jesus says this very thing. Eventually, all your secret thoughts will be revealed, he says. And you know, at that point, if you're not with him, your only destination he says, is hell. That's Jesus' teaching. You know, when we consider lost, I think the word maybe it depends, on the, depends on the context in which we use it, doesn't it? For example, if you think of yourself as lost out of the ocean, yourself in a little dinghy in the middle of the Indian Ocean, that's terrifying. But lost in the, in the department store, well... I mean every kid is lost in a department store at some point, aren't they? But what if what if the parent never comes? What if their cries never heard? See being lost is such a perfect description of our deepest existential fear, which is to be alone. To never be heard. To never really be known. To reach a point where there is no rescue. There is no person answering the call. You know, Rico Tice, English pastor, says this. Jesus tells us that hell is a place of suffering. There's no fun in hell, no friendship either. Hell means being totally separated from God's mercy and blessing. Be lost. Being lost to God. In hell there are no gifts That's God's punishment on those who choose eternity without him. It's sobering, but this is what Jesus is teaching when he says they are lost. Fluffy white lamb lost, little coin lost. It's the velvet hammer behind what he's saying. This is the reality of the world. You know what's what's startling is the world didn't start to get bleak back in 1971. It was bleak back in Jesus' time. And, of course, the Bible tells us it was bleak from that cursed moment that Adam and Eve transgressed God's law, right? That is is the source of things. That is the reality of the world we live in. It's not about who ticked the box on a census It's not about whether your friends like the same things as you. Whether they naturally incline to the same kind of moral framework as you. The world is a bleak place, says Jesus. That's the world that we are in. So the challenge, of course, is the question, the big question... And it's the question that has to drive our vision and mission as a church here in Willoughby is how do we respond to that? Jesus tells this story with those two groups in mind at the start of the passage. The parable parable is told with the Pharisees and the crowd in mind. And in part, the main part actually, it's told as a rebuke to the Pharisees. They they mutter, you'll notice in verse 2. They mutter, oh, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. This is a a common refrain in Luke's recount of Jesus' life. Every time he tells this story, every time he tells a story of Jesus interacting with someone who's not part of the religious league, it's common for the religious league to say, oh, he eats with tax collectors and sinners because for them they can't understand this. For them life is an us and them thing. And Jesus is crossing the us and them boundary. And they don't like that. But Jesus is pushing them. He's saying, no, actually, your anger and your hostility, because that's really one of the ways people respond to this reality of the world, the bleakness of the world, is anger and hostility. And he says, well, anger and hostility is not on. There's something genuinely unwholesome about that. Genuinely unloving. Unloving. About the us and them. How do you respond to a life? Do you say, oh, I I fear contamination? I, I'm going to withdraw. Do you constantly think of an us and them mindset? Because Jesus is Jesus is telling this story to rebuke us if that's where we're at. I think more likely, and a growing trend actually in our culture, is not anger, but apathy, you know. Not anger, but apathy. We think, ah, they're lost, oh well. I'd rather not think about that actually. It's a product maybe of a culture where we have so internalised religion and faith and spirituality, so that it is really just something between uh, me and God. It's not really for you to speak into that. I mean, we talk about facts. We're happy to talk about facts. The scientific method has so infiltrated our thinking. There are certain things that are absolutely open to talk about facts. We debate facts, but we don't debate spirituality. That's just something between you and God. And what it's led us to is a sense of apathy, actually, about the destination of all people but it's not just us and them it's us too this uh this is a survey done of um, millennial christians well it's all a bunch of christians actually across the full full range of spectrums but the really interesting insight is as we get younger look at how this mindset has really permeated us i'll read the questions out because they're a bit small here uh, the first question, the first thing they had to respond to was, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. And across the board, 94% for millennials, 97% for Gen X, boomers and elders, they all said yes, right? Um, the the, the centre one is strongly agree, the light one is somewhat agree. So 97% of people would say that. The best thing, that they're surveying Christians, sorry, they're surveying Christians, Surveying Christians, they say, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. 97%. That's great. Unsurprising. Hopefully. I'll tell you what's really surprising is the next answer. They surveyed them and they said, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And then, look at that number, particularly in the the younger generations. 47%. Of those people who said that the greatest thing to happen to someone is to meet Jesus, 47% said, yeah, it's wrong to share your faith. Isn't that extraordinary? They think the best thing that could ever happen to someone is to meet Jesus, but half of them think you should never tell anyone that. Although, before I let the rest of us off the hook, even even the like post war generation 20% so one in five people say no nah, you shouldn't tell what that is of course is this mindset of apathy about the the eternal reality of the people we know and purportedly love and just in case we think oh well that's just that's kind of that's a general stat i think this is that that is here it's in our mindset, too. Look at this. This is from our NCLS survey. If you don't know what NCLS is, uh, earlier in the year, we did a survey. It's, it's a kind of, it coincides with the census. Uh, all the churches across Sydney, different denominations, do it. Our church did it. We filled in this survey. whole heap of questions. And it, actually, the survey results are in your booklet, if you're, if you're, coming, if you're uh, following along. The questions here were, what do you value and what should we invest in as a church, Right? Only 25% of us valued reaching those who do not attend church. Only 25% of us. Talking about what we should invest in, only 26% said we should encourage people here to share their faith and invite others. Only a quarter of us think that this is valuable, and only a quarter of us think that this is worth investing in. Now, I suspect that's because the mindset, which thinks of religion as something internalised, has so pervaded our thinking that we don't have a clarity about the eternal reality of the people we know. Now, why is this troubling for me? This is deeply troubling for me, this this number. And God willing, it will go up over the years. But this is deeply tr- troubling for me. Because ultimately, this is a question of whether you love someone or not. Whether you love someone or not. Do you know... Um, Penn and Teller, the magicians, maybe you remember them? These are the, the one guy's like this tall, heavy set guy, and the other one's really short, and they, they do magic acts together. Now, they're not, they're not Christian believers in any way. In fact, they're quite staunchly atheist in many ways uh, and hostile to Christianity, although Penn Jillette, the, the, the the taller guy, this is what he says. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytise, which is try to, you know, share and, convert people. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytise? He's not a Christian. He's He's just following the rational thought process here. If you believe what Jesus is saying about the state of the world, now you don't have to. We always expect to have visitors, people who are exploring the Christian faith. You may not be there. You may not believe what Jesus says. This doesn't apply to you then, right? But if you believe what Jesus is saying, if you believe his view of the state of the world and what he means when he says lost, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize. I, I don't think there's anything more that needs to be said. It's stark, but it's true, right? We set ourselves a vision statement, as I talked about last week, which was this. Sorry, I, didn't, I haven't got the font sizes right for today, so work with me. We long to be a church made beautiful, diverse, and large by the gracious work of Christ. We talked about diversity. I want to talk about that third word, large. People say, what do we mean by that? Well, in part, we mean a church where these buildings are overflowing with saved people. We want that partly because the vision of the Bible is God's church is this great multitude, we're told in Revelations, which you cannot count. He can count other things in the, in the Revelation, but he can't count the multitude who are at the throne. It is such a great, overwhelming number. But it's not just about the people who are here on a Sunday as much as I value this time. It is about a deep conviction that people need to meet Jesus. And such is the need for this, that this should be this, the number of people who meet Jesus should just overwhelm us. Here's another way to con- consider it. You'll see this graphic on your booklets as well. Again, it's blurry, but there we go. You know, I talk about this intersection, two kilometres from within this intersection. I say it's 60,000 people live within two kilometres. That that's not far. That's an eight minute walk that way, depending on your mobility. we we want every one of those people to have the opportunity to meet Jesus don't we if what he's saying is true and so we want every person within 2 kilometers of our church to know a member of our church who is building relationships with them who's serving them and who's sharing the gospel with them that's what we want we want to be a church at large in the lives of people pointing them to Jesus Because we believe that every person in every one of those streets, apart from the gospel, is lost. That's why we want to be a large church. It's not about building the name of St. Stephen's. And so actually, when we think about our core characteristics, we have four of them. We talked about praying big prayers shaped by the gospel last week. The second characteristic, and perhaps the first thing we do, so to speak, as a church is we we long to be a church that's bringing our friends to faith. The language here in this is very intentional. First, it's bringing. We don't believe that we'll just stand at the door and people will come to us that day and it's gone. I mean, God bless you if you're one of those people who did come to us by just coming. Good on you. God has been at work in your life. But that's not going to reach the 60,000 people within two kilometres. We want to get out there and bring them. Come with them, hand in hand. And we, we need to be friends with them. You know, uh, we, we ran Dumpling Night on Friday night. Fantastic. Uh, kudos to the team, the many volunteers who kind of put that whole thing together. I think we had 130 or thereabouts people in, in the building. We had something like uh, 60 Non, non-church adults and a whole swathe of youth and teenagers who'd not been to any of our things before. Fantastic. But you know what? That is not the goal. The goal is not to have 130 people at Dumpling Night, as great as it was and as bad as the dumplings were. That is not the goal, you understand? The goal is not to look around and say, oh, wonderful, our building is filled with people. The goal of that night is that many people, many of those, in fact, we long for all of those people who don't know Christ but came to that meeting to come to the Simply Christianity course, which starts this Friday. That's the goal. And not even Simply Christianity, of course, but faith in Christ. That's what we want. Don't give ourselves a tick because we had 130 people in the building. That is not the goal. The goal is that people will know Christ. And the key, actually, is friendship. You know, I went through the response uh, sheets to people who have showed interest in coming to Simply Christianity. Overwhelmingly, the people who are interested are people who were brought by someone to the event, not someone who responded to a Facebook post, as much as we loved having them, or a flyer in the mail, or a sign on the corner. We give ourselves... We, we try to let ourselves off the... Off the hook by thinking that those things will lead people to it's you you are the key and, and what's so encouraging when you look at the people who've said they want to do the course is there is a St Stephen's person often connected with that person having come to the event praise God for that St Stephen's person we have a whole we have a whole pathway right I said to you last week, there are four key kind of strategic pieces to the puzzle. The second one is outreach. And so we want to get as many people on a pathway that leads them from unbelief to faith. We want to flood that pathway. And so in some ways, Friday's this great start to that. We have all these programs. We do these moments of where people get a soft introduction to St. Stephen's. They get to taste it. They get to meet St. Stephen's people. They get a little taste of the course. And and that hopefully leads them in, like we pray many people will still take the opportunity to go to Simply Christianity. But the pathway, the programs, they're all secondary to you. To you. Because the people, you know them, first of all, and you're the key to reaching them. The key to reaching this area is not the senior minister, and it's not the assistant minister in charge of outreach, and it's not the quality of the outreach programs. It's you. It's you. And perhaps you're feeling pretty overwhelmed by this idea. 60,000 people, so many of them lost in a deep existential way. It's up to you. Well, maybe, maybe you feel overwhelmed because w- when it's come to the moment to speak, you, you feel like you haven't said anything or you've said the wrong thing or you missed your opportunity. Or maybe you feel overwhelmed because you've asked people and they just say no. Or you've asked them and they've come and it feels like nothing has happened. Well... I just want to say to you that the point of these two stories Jesus tells is not actually that you should go out and seek them as much as that's relevant and a call of Scripture. The point of this is actually that the great seeker of the lost is God himself. He's the one. And the two stories are actually meant to assure you of God's heart. I love this painting, by James Tissot, French painter of the uh, late 1800s. It's a picture of the woman in the second parable. God is the shepherd. God is the woman. I love this painting because here it is. It's you know in Jesus' time there's no electricity, of course. So she's got her little lamp, bringing light. She's on the floor, she's prone, she's got her broom reaching under something to the darkest, most inaccessible corner of the room to see if the coin is there. The beauty of Jesus' story is that he's saying that's who God is. God is there on his knees, God is there peering into the darkness. Extraordinary Jesus saying, God is like a peasant woman. Does that startle you? You know, that's not the most startling thing. The most startling thing is, God is like his son on the cross, seeking you. He's not just a woman, he is the son of God on the cross feeling the full extent of lostness. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the Son who cries out and does not have the Father respond. There he is. He is truly lost. Truly lost. So that he might find you that he might find me God is so committed to finding and seeking and saving the lost and you know what's so extraordinary actually for each of us is all we have to do is just point people to Jesus that's it that's it because God has got this. He's doing the legwork. He's the one who's seeking and saving the lost. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for seeking and saving me, lost in my sin. Alone and without hope. Thank you for your Son who put himself on the cross willingly for the joy, for the joy of seeking and saving the lost. Heavenly Father, would you seek and save many people who are currently lost for your glory? Amen.